Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. And I got to say, I'm, I am super thankful for Bill Turner, our associate pastor. And I think he does a great job um, operating outside of his comfort zone week in and out. And that is giving announcements. I don't know if you know this, but he hates giving announcements. Um, and I think he normally does a really good job. But this morning it fell short a little bit. Uh, and I got to say why, because it, when he was talking about ice cream, I'm not sure Bill gave it the, the full um, magnitude that it, uh, of, of what we want to do here on Thursday night that it, that it deserves, okay? Uh, the idea here, we, we want you not to just think about maybe possibly bringing some uh, accoutrements and sides. We want to set up this table, and the table is designed for lots of sides that you bring for your, the ice cream to make it interesting, right? So, Bill, love you, brother, but, you know, you missed the mark a little bit on that one. So bring, like, strawberry stuff, and if you like sprinkly stuff, bring that. If you like gummy bears on your ice cream, bring that. If you like fruit, bring that. Does that make sense? So we're, we're providing the basics, but you got to bring all the cool stuff to make it really shine. All right. You know, let's talk about, um, let's talk about bubbles for a minute, popping bubbles. Um... When I was a kid, I used to chase bubbles. Maybe you, maybe you kids do that even still, some of you younger ones, right? But when I was two, um, a really big bubble, the bigger the better. And, you know, there's all kinds of happiness in that bubble, right? And, and, but then, of course, when you got your hands around it, boom, um, nothing. And, and the thing is, um, as we grow up, sometimes we still kind of like to pop bubbles, but of a different sort. You know what I mean? Like other people have bubbles, and sometimes it's kind of fun to, to just pop that bubble. And, you know, Paul popped the Jews' bubble, kind of like I just popped Bill's bubble, right? The, 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 the Paul popped the Jews' bubble of self-righteousness big time, right? L last week, that's what we, that's what we studied. Um, Romans chapter 2 and Paul's argument against the Jews' false boasting in the law. And we, we applied that to our own tendency towards theological pride when we study the Bible instead of versus God worship, which is what theology should result in. Uh, and, and Paul popped that bubble, that Jewish bubble of confidence in their circumcision or in their, that, that's a way of saying their Jewish identity. And so we apply that to things like baptism or maybe church membership. Good things, but where if that becomes our confidence in our identity as belonging to this, this church or this group, instead of Christ, that's a, a, bobble, a, a bubble that needs to be burst. And so we concluded that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all we can say is all I have is Christ. And I hope that this morning your, your heart confidence is in Jesus alone, uh, that, that you are trusting in him for your salvation and, and even for your significance. Well, maybe, maybe you like to pop bubbles, okay? Um, I want to say this, that, pa that Paul here, as harsh as he was in Romans chapter 2, he is popping this Jewish bubble with some grace. And we see that this morning. He anticipates so, and he answers some Jewish questions, all right? And he actually does it with some grace here that we're going to see. And, and really they're wondering, well then, is there anything good at all about being Jewish? I mean, Paul, you popped our bubble of possessing the law. And you popped our bubble, as strange as it sounds to us today in 21st century America, of circumcision, right? That was a big bubble for them. You popped these bubbles... But he does it with grace, and they're wondering, well, is there anything good then about being Jewish? Right? I mean, we've had hundreds, even, even 18 centuries, so hundreds of years from Abraham to Jesus Christ. Is there anything good about being Jewish? And so here's how Paul answers that question. What then advantage, I'm reading in verse 1 here of Romans chapter 2, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, he says, much in every way. There is a great advantage of these 18 centuries of history that the Jews have had. Well, what is that advantage? To begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
Now we'll stop the press for a minute. Um, that's it. We're going to just, this sermon this morning is what I, what, what I just read, verses 1 and 2. Okay, and I got to just explain, uh, I've experienced this week a little bit of, a, of an evolution of uh, sermon preparation. Uh, my plan on Monday, I was looking at verses 1 through 20. You know, that I like to talk about big picture and, and you know, we don't want to spend like seven years like Piper, you know, going through Romans here. If we're going to do it in a year and a half, you know, let's do three or four um, sermons a chapter. And so I kind of had it mapped out. And then I started getting into this and studying it. And by Tuesday, I decided that I was only going to be able to cover verses one through eight. As Paul engages in some back and forth, actually, it's, it's an apologetic dialogue with an imaginary Jew. And there are four questions uh, from an, an imaginary Jewish objector, who I think was actually Paul himself, if you think about it, before he was a Christian, he was out there persecuting this, what he considered a heresy. So he had objections. Uh, and so he's answering, anticipating and answering the objections that a Jew would have to what he's saying as he explains how all people are in the same boat, condemned before God under sin, right? The bad news of the gospel, why we need a savior. So it doesn't matter if you're a pagan or if you're a religious moralist or if you're a Jew, you're all in the same boat. And so you're all guilty before God. And so he knows there's objections. And so he lists four questions. And as I went through them, I'm like, man, these are close to some of the questions we hear from non-believers today. And this is going to be great for like a, a sermon on apologetics, right? So I kind of went through most of the week kind of planning in that degree. And then just yesterday, um, I, I, I got tripped up on four words. The oracles of God and the significance of the Old Testament and how it points us to the attributes of God. And, and as I was studying more and more, and, and, and I was like, man, I can't get past verse 2 here. So come back next week. We're going to get into part 2 of P Apologetics by Paul. But part 1 will be today, and that is the oracles of God that God entrusted the Jews with. And you see, this was a definite advantage that they had for these 18 centuries of history between Abraham and Christ. Now, I checked into some of the other translations. Uh, how do they translate the, this word, the oracles of God? Uh, NIV says the very words of God they were entrusted with. Um, another translation says the whole revelation of God or the spoken words of God. So this is clearly a reference to the Jewish Torah, those first five books of the Old Testament that we often call the Pentateuch, uh, that was summarized as the Jewish law. But by extension, it goes beyond that. It's all the prophets, really the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. And so by, by application, we too have been in, in, uh, entrusted even more richly with the oracles of God because we have all 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the very words of God. And this was a great privilege to the Jewish people. John Stott said, indeed, to be the custodians of God's special revelation was an immensely privileged responsibility. It had been given to no other nation. Well, we bear even more of this responsibility today because we are able to look at the, those Old Testament oracles of God through the lens and through the light of the New Testament, and through, we can see how it all points to Jesus. But I want to talk a little bit about the Old Testament for a moment. You see, the greatest thing about the Old Testament is it tells us about God's nature and his plan, and it also tells us about mankind, about our nature, and about our purpose. Some of God's nature can be clearly discerned from creation. We've already seen that in, in Romans chapter 1 and in chapter 2. I mean, there are things, there are aspects of God that can be learned from looking at his creation. I mean, we see his beauty. And we see a, a little fragment of his power and his creativity. Uh, you might even discern love and, and you might even discern judgment maybe in a, in a storm. But, you know, looking at God's nature as discerned from creation, would be kind of like looking at a cave art drawing compared to what we have today. 
that is a moving picture on a TV screen, the way God has revealed himself throughout his special revelation to us. And so the Bible, especially the Old Testament, teaches us about God's nature and his plan. You know, there are plenty of folks in our world who haven't had the Word of God, who have not had the oracles of God, but still believe in some kind of a creator. 1.8 billion people in the world today call that creator Allah. Some great Western scientific minds today, and I kind of say great a little bit ironically here, um, have reached the end of the math probability train. You know what I mean by that? Uh, crunching the numbers of the possibility of, of life just um, somehow evolving or becoming from, from no life or from nothing, just from this petri dish of, of kind of elements. And, you know, they've crunched the numbers and the probability and finally concluded that the only logical explanation is that we, our planet, was seeded by aliens. And we might snicker, but like some of the greatest minds today out there that refuse to believe the oracles of God are now saying this. I mean, 30 years ago, that was considered crazy. This is becoming more and more mainstream among some of the top professor, PhD type people out there. So in a sense, those aliens at some level, there's a creator that they would say somehow has to exist out there. Others in our own culture think that they believe in a vague Christian notion of God, usually kind of like a deistic notion, meaning that God is far away and not really that involved or interested in our daily lives, but he set the whole clockwork in, in motion once upon a time. But their form of God doesn't come from the oracles of God. The Bible teaches that God is perfect, infinite in his attributes, beyond all human, full understanding. The Bible also teaches that we are sinful, finite, limited beings. And therefore there's a, a huge chasm between God and man. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon and stood on one side and looked across at the other and considered the improbability of being able to jump across. Well, the thing is, this, this canyon is really vertical, not horizontal between us and God. But in man's wisdom, man tries to close the gap, okay, in, in man-made religion, either by lifting man up, deifying man, or by bringing God down to our level. We, we, as humans, tend to create a God according to our own image, a God that we can wrap our minds around and, and even manipulate, kind of like a celestial genie that we want to imagine who's there to do our own bidding, or at least a heavenly Santa Claus who is all merciful and loving, but, but who is, is short on wrath or justice. You know, in many Christian churches today, God is not really even seen as being sovereign. And, and that often comes because we as humans struggle to understand in our limited perspective how God's complete, meticulous sovereignty can, can jive with human freedom and responsibility. And, and so we shave a piece of that puzzle off, of that puzzle piece off to make it all fit. And so we, we deny God's full sovereignty because we want, to make, we want to have him in an image that we can understand. But none of this is according to the oracles of God. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about God. But it does tell us everything that we need to know in our lifetime about God. Several of the church creeds attempt to summarize biblical teaching of, of God. And that's quite a, a task uh, to do. Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines God this way. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. They did a pretty good job, those divines back in the day. The Baptist Faith and Message defines God uh, with a few more words. It states, there is only one and only one living and true God. 
He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals to us, himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Now we could spend a number of sermons unpacking that statement. And actually we spent some time in, at least in our Adult Bible Fellowship 2 class, months ago talking about who God is. But the greatest thing that the Bible tells us is about God. He, he discloses himself to us. And, and, and so this morning, and, and actually this kind of hit me yesterday morning as I was, as, and I was already planning on doing this, but as I was looking into his attributes, I was like, you know what? We need to spend a Sunday stopping and just thinking about who our great God is. Not just thinking about what he does for us, and he does marvelous things for us. But who is he, and what, how has he disclosed his nature to us in his oracles? So in trying to, well, how do you, how do you unpack all that into one sermon? And so, um, you know, th there are a number of church creeds and uh, church traditions that list out the attributes of God. I looked in several directions, but the, the one, one, one writer who I thought did a great job systematizing it was Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology. And so for the sake of clarity and the sake of time, we're going to, we're going to look through 25 attributes of God as Wayne Grudem has listed them out. Okay, now we're going to spend most of our time talking about the first five because these are what theologians call God's incommunicable attributes. That's kind of a, uh, a fancy word. But what that means is these are attributes of God that he does not communicate or share with us. Okay? So there are, these are five attributes that God has that we are not really like. And because of that, it's actually harder for us to understand some of these attributes. I mean, it's really hard to wrap your mind around anything that is infinite in value because it's something just beyond our human experience. Also, as we look at these five incommunicable attributes of God, um, I'm going to only, I've chosen only scripture references from the Old Testament because I want you to see how the oracles of God that the Jews had tell us so much. So, so many deep riches about God, about who he is. But remember, this is like watching that moving picture on your grandfather's black and white TV screen, okay? Because the New Testament shines the light of the triune God and tells us so much more. So we're going to look at black and white for the first five uh, incommunicable attributes. And then we're going to kind of blast through the last 20 communicable attributes because these ones are... Uh, more like us, meaning God has actually communicated or given us uh, in limited measure these attributes as well. And in fact, the more full of his spirit we are, the more like him we become with the last 20. So lest you uh, fear that you may, um, you know, get writer's cramp or carpal tunnel or something like that, trying to keep up with the notes, I have these listed out for you in the worship guide. You might need a pair of reading glasses for the backside or even binoculars maybe for later when you get home or maybe you got a magnifying glass at home um, to be able to read all these. Did my best to get them to all fit. So let's look at these first five attributes. And my hope and prayer is that as we do so, this won't be just an intellectual exercise, but your heart will be moved to worship this great God because he's worthy of our worship, not only for what he has done for us and, and does for us, every day and will do for us in eternity. He's worthy of our worship because of who he is, because of his nature. So his first attribute is that of independence. And all the, def the, the definitions that I've got for these five incommunicable attributes come from Grudem. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. 
Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. There's a host of passages we could look at, but Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before there was anything, any matter, you existed. So therefore, God doesn't need us or his creation. In fact, we know that God existed in perfect relational bliss in the Trinity. Some people think that, that God made man and, because he was lonely. That's not true. God had the most full relationship among the Trinity for what we might think of as eternity past, although we're going to get to in a moment that that, that that designation of eternity past even falls short logically a little bit. Okay? Before there was anything, there was God and he was fully independent. And yet, he chooses to allow us to glorify him and even have the ability to make him happy, to bring him joy. Now, there's some, there's some mystery in that. How can a truly independent being be affected by our affections and our obedience? Isaiah 62, verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Christian, can you imagine that? God rejoicing over you? He does. So God is the only truly independent being. And we can't even imagine full, true independence such as God has. God is also fully unchangeable. God, and I'm reading the definition here, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises, yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. Psalm 102, verse 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you endure. They will all wear out like a garment. You change them like raiment, and they pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So God is the only being who does not change. And he doesn't change in his being, his perfections, his purposes, or his promises. And yet, he does feel. And again, we can't wrap our minds fully around any of these incommunicable attributes because they all have eternal natures. Okay, but what we can do is just stop and believe what he says about himself and marvel. God is eternal, number three. He isn't limited by time like we are. Here's the definition of the eternity of God. God has no beginning, end, or succession of movements in his own being, and he sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. You might want to read that one over a couple times later. But in Exodus 3, 14, God revealed his name, which was really a description of himself to Moses by saying, and I am who I am. He said, go tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. <laughs> That's my name. That's where we get the, the name Yahweh, Jehovah. I am. I am the eternal one, the unmoved mover, the, the uncreated creator. God is not limited by time. He was before there was any time. Psalm 90 verse 4. Therefore, 
For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or is it watching the night? Uh, you know, if we lived to be, if we could live to be a thousand years old, um, I, I don't think we'd remember much about the first few centuries of our lives, right? I mean, I have a hard time remembering what I ate for breakfast this morning. Um, a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday. God sees it all concurrently, time. He's not bound by time as we are, and yet he chooses to interact with us in time. And when we recognize that, I think it, it maybe without fully satisfying us, it, it certainly answers some of the questions we have about God and his will. Wayne Grudem wrote this. When God created the universe, he also created time. When God began to create the universe, time began, and there began to be a succession of moments and events, one after another. But before there was a universe, and before there was time, God always existed, without beginning, and without being influenced by time. And time, therefore, does not have existence in itself, but like the rest of creation, depends on God's eternal being and power to keep it existing. We've got to make sure that we don't make time a God. God. God is God. Time serves him, and time depends on, on him. Number four, omnipresence. And the more I thought about this, the more hard it was to wrap my mind around his omnipresence than it was his eternality. Okay. Um, that's a big word, omnipresence. Um, the idea is all presence everywhere, right? But I think it goes even deeper than that. God is not limited by space. The whole space-time continuum that we're limited in and, and placed in, God is not stuck there. He operates in it, but he doesn't live within it. He lived before that existed. God is not limited by space as we are. Here's the definition. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. So God cannot be contained by space. We see that in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 8, 27. Solomon asks this question when God's talking to him about building a temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So what that means is God is not just really big. Okay, maybe kids, it might help you to think of God as so big, right? So strong and so mighty. He is. But he's not just really big, like bigger than the universe. Because this still imagines him being a shape, if you think about it, right? We think of the universe being so big we can't imagine how big it is. It almost seems infinite in size, although we don't think it's quite infinite in size. Um, and sometimes we think, well, then God must, the extent of God must be a little, you know, a little bit wider than the universe, right? Because the thing, that, the thing that's really big that we can't even fathom, that is the universe, um, um, its creator must be bigger. But when we think that way, we're still confining God to some kind of a shape. But God exists beyond spatial dimensions. God existed before he created time and space. So he existed before, from our limited imagination, there was a when or a where. Does that make sense? God is bigger than wins or wares. Right? But God is also present with us. He is transcendent. So huge, but he loves you. And he is with us journeying in our space. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So that means God is here with us right now in church. 
Jesus said, we're two or more gathered in my name, I'm with them. So right now, if there are persecuted house churches in Islamic countries, God is with them as well. But God is also equally present with you this week, traveler, in your hotel room. He's in the furthest corner of space, in the deepest depth trench of the ocean. He's with us when we journey through the slough of despair or through the valley of the shadow of death. Even there, he is holding us. A guy named Herman Bobink in his work, The Doctrine of God, wrote this. When you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter, so you retire into your heart. There you meditate. He is more inward than your heart. Wherefore, therefore, you shall have fled wherever that is he is. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him. End quote. Number five. We, we've seen this morning just by review real quickly here. God is independent and he's unchangeable and he's, he's eternal and he's omnipresent. But God is also unity. And, 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 and theologians in the past called this the simplicity of God, but the word simplicity has changed, okay, to mean, you know, simple to understand. So uh, a better word uh, today in our vernacular would be unity. And what this means is God is not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. Maybe you think of God sometimes like you do yourself, uh, your own emotional state maybe, or your personality, and that is like a pie chart, right? And so each slice of that pie chart is an attribute, and they kind of compete with each other for dominance. So um, this slice is God's grace. And this slice is his love. And this slice is his wrath. And so if this gets a little bit bigger, his grace gets a little bit smaller. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but that's a natural human way to kind of look at us because we tend to be dominated by one attribute or one feeling or one emotion at a time as, as celestial beings or not non as terrestrial beings, right? As humans, right? Well, God does not have dominant attributes, in fact, sometimes uh, Reformed churches err on this and, and act like the sovereignty of God is a bigger attribute than some of the others. Or uh, in our culture, we, we, we like to talk about the love of God and we'll act like that's a bigger attribute than maybe his wrath or one of his other attributes, and, and w which would mean then that other attributes are subordinate to the dominant ones. No, every attribute is fully true of all of God's character. He alone can be fully loving towards his creation at the same time that he's fully wrathful at injustice. We can't do that. I can't do that. If I'm mad, I'm just not really very loving at the same time, usually, okay? Um, God alone can be. So God's whole being is entirely merciful, entirely gracious, entirely loving, entirely faithful, entirely just, etc. all the time. We see uh, a little bit of this um, manifest in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7, when God was revealing himself to Moses, right? Revealing his tail, so to speak, the back, backside of himself, just a little bit. And we, we read that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, Wayne Grudem asked this, and I, I, instead of trying to explain it, I'm just going to read him verbatim here for a moment here. So um, follow me if you can. He asks a very good question that maybe you've thought about before. Why then does Scripture speak of these different attributes of God? 
It is probably because we are unable to grasp all of God's character at one time, and we need to learn of it from different perspectives over a period of time. Yet these perspectives should never be set in opposition to one another, for they are just different ways of looking at the totality of God's character. Now, it is true that some actions of God show certain of his attributes more prominently. Creation demonstrates his power and wisdom. The atonement demonstrates his love and his justice. And the radiance of heaven demonstrates his glory and beauty. But all of these in some way or other also demonstrate his knowledge and holiness and mercy and truthfulness and patience and sovereignty. God is a unity and everything he does is an act of the whole person of God. End quote. So brothers and sisters, considering God's incommunicable attributes, it's got to lead us to a place of humility and a place of worship. And, and maybe for you this morning, I, I pray, um, an attitude of, of repentance even. Kind of like Isaiah standing before the throne of God when he saw a glimpse, right? Uh, a vision of God's holiness. And, and he was just like, woe is me. You know, no one had to point out his sin. He just, he recognized it because he saw himself contrasted to who God is. So maybe this morning that's you, that there's some sin in your life you need to confess. Or maybe you're worried about the future. Well, well instead of thinking about all the variables, you just need to look at God. I, I couldn't help but worship. As I was reading through a whole lot more than what I had the time to just express uh, yesterday, um, I started in my, my heart singing a song of worship to the Lord. And wouldn't you know, I get to the end of the chapter uh, by Grudem, and he does that. I love that in his systematic theology, that orthodoxy should lead, lead to, to worship, right? And so he, he, he has this hymn, and it was the very hymn that was floating through my head. I don't know if my eyes had accidentally seen it. And, and not registered, or my front brain didn't realize what my back brain saw, or whatever. I don't know what the medical terms are for that. But, but I was singing the song, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. And there it was. Now, you know, a lot of our songs, uh, most of our songs, actually, that we sing in worship to God, detail what he's done for us. And rightly so. We should give him thanks. I love, what I love about this song is it just worships God for his nature, for who he is. So let me just read it to you real quick. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, oh help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Well, let's keep going and talk about the communicable attributes of God. These are attributes that God has that as he created man is in his image, he shared with us in our original unfallen state of glory. Now, these, this was certainly in measured finite bits, okay? So every one of these attributes that we may share to some degree in a finite way, God has them times infinity, right? He has them eternally. Now, it's easier to understand, so I'm going to just fly through these, and I just hope that this will help direct your hearts to, to worship our God even more. This list is certainly not exhaustive. This is the list that, that Grudem compiled. Uh, some ancient creeds have, have more, others less, and there's one in particular that I'm going to mention afterwards that I didn't see on this list. Some of these things are, are like um, 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 maybe subpoints even that you can think of. Now, I'm going to quote verses from the Old Testament and New Testament. So this is like we're looking at God's revelation now, a moving picture on an 8K high-definition television set, right? Old Testament, New Testament, full counsel of God. So you got looking at creation, right? Your, your cave drawings, Old Testament, black and white TV. Now we're in the most high-definition experience known to mankind, 
okay? So as I read through this list, I just want you to imagine that you're hearing these for the first time ever, okay? So let not your mind be, well, I knew that. No, imagine someone is telling you about God, this being, for the very first time. Well, God is spirit, John 4, 24. God is invisible, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, but we certainly see visible manifestations from God. God is omniscient, John 3, 20. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. God is wise. With him are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding, Job 9, 4. God is truthful. We may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5, 20. God is good. By that I mean he is the definition, he is the standard of good. No one is good but God alone. Luke 18, 19. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. That means that God gives of himself for the good of others. Just want you to think about that for a second. God gives of himself for the good of others. God is merciful. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Exodus 34, 6. God is holy. Grudem explains this one. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6, 3. God is peace. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is just all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he, Deuteronomy 32, 4. God is jealous, jealous. That means God is watchful for his own honor. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God, Exodus 34, 14. My glory I will not give to another, Isaiah 48, 11. Grudem writes, It is healthy for us spiritually when we settle in our hearts the fact that God deserves all honor and glory from his creation and that it is right for him to seek this honor. He alone is infinitely worthy of being praised. To realize this fact and to delight in it is to find the secret of true worship. God is wrath. That is, he is intense in his hatred of sin. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3, 36. God is willful. Maybe a better way of putting that because of the negative connotations of willful would be God has a will. Grudem defines it this way. God's will is that attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1, 11. God is free. In other words, nothing restrains God from doing his will. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, 3. God is sovereign. Another word for that would be omnipotent, all-powerful. Unlike us, he is able to fully accomplish his will. Nothing is too hard for you, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. With God, all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26. God is perfect. Your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. God is blessed. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, 1 Timothy 6, 15. And brothers and sisters, that means God is truly happy. 
He delights in himself fully and in all creation that reflects his goodness. So in the very beginning, we read in Genesis 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. That statement of very good is God being happy in his creation. God is beautiful. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 4. And number 20, God is glorious. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Psalm 24, 10. Now as we've just blasted through this list of God's attributes. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that God is also knowable because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. God is knowable. We cannot know everything about God, but we can truly know God. He has revealed himself to us in his oracles in a way that we can understand. And that means that God, this is what on Grudem's list, but God is also humble. He's the most humble creature in the universe. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, we read, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Can you imagine a God that we've been just trying to, that we've been just thinking about? Being humble enough and loving enough to reveal himself to us with a desire to be understood as, much, as, as wide as our bandwidth will go. And to be loved and to be known, to actually walk with his creatures, to have a real relationship with people, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So this means that God has a plan. The Bible tells us about his nature, but it also tells us his plan, and that is to redeem for himself a people from every nation. We sung it already this morning. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the oracles of God told us, tell us about his nature, who he is. Some incredible things about God that no human being could just invent. And it tells us that he's got a master plan. He's got a meta-narrative, the redemption of people, to the creation of a kingdom, of a, of a, of a church that, is, that, that spans language and time and, and, and culture. People who will worship and know him through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I spent a lot of time on the first point. So I got to be like super brief on the second. And that is the Bible, the oracles of God also tell us about the nature and the purpose of man. The Bible tells us that man is made in the image of God. And so we do share many of God's attributes, but in limited form, limited extent. And we were created to actually be able to experience a real relationship with this immortal, invisible God. We were actually the pinnacle of his creation and therefore a noble creature. Every life, every man and woman should be treated with dignity. But the Bible also teaches that man is fallen. We have rebelled and therefore are born in sin. And we're going to look at this in, in great splendor uh, two weeks from now as we look at Romans 3, 9 through 20 and consider the doctrine of total depravity. 
we're right, in fact, this, this, this whole passage is right in the middle of Paul's exposition of man's fallenness. And so therefore, we are incapable of pleasing God in our broken state. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news is that man is redeemable through the blood of Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that means that mankind has a purpose, a a calling. And that is to love God with the core of our being and to make him known to others. Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that means telling your neighbor about Jesus Christ. That's why our vision statement as a church is we exist to know him and to make him known. The fuel for evangelism has got to be a relationship with God, knowing God. And, and, and a diagnosis maybe of the heart where you are is are you making him known? You, because you can't really know him without making him known. They, they go together. So that's who we want to be as a church. That's our vision. We want to be made up of a, of, of a people of God who know him, who walk with him, who love him, and who talk about him and, and show him through our lives and through our, our words. Well, brothers and sisters, God entrusted the oracles of God the oracles, the word to his people Israel for, for 18 centuries. They were receiving bits of this Torah, this, this word. And, 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 and they, they got the Pentateuch and then God brought different prophets and, and it was all collected together. But, but we have it far better because we have the full oracles of, of God. And these are... These are the, the Bible is something to be delighted in, not to be worshipped. We should worship God because it points us to God. It reveals who, who God is to us. This week, I had a, a chance to sit down with a couple, and I was talking with them, and I asked them if they believed in God. Uh, and, and they said they did, but that they had been burned by the church, and so they weren't interested uh, in, in being a part of a church. And I encouraged them to get back into reading scripture and I encourage them to join a church and I, I actually shared some of the things I shared with you last week about how beautiful the church is. But I told them that true Christianity is more than just the knowledge of God's word or just belonging to a church. True Christianity is knowing the one true God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray together.